Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. I think I would work on, I just worked on a lot of smaller petitions. Is that, huh? Um, Kirsten Cinema worked on that campaign as well. Yeah, she's my boss. Was she a good boss to you? I would say, yeah, actually. I would say overall, she was a good boss. She fired me eventually, but. <laughs> That's Representative Ruben Gallego, a four-term congressman from Arizona. We're at Buck and Ryder, an upscale seafood restaurant in Phoenix. It was empty and quiet when just the two of us met here in the daylight at 4.30. And it was packed and raucous when our party, which had ballooned to five by then, stumbled out into the darkness after 10 p.m. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah, I'm you, not letting... you don't get to control this. No, these guys know me like... It was that kind of interview. Oh, no, 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 that's not cool. These guys have known me forever. That's not cool at This all. is Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Ryan Lizza. His friends showed up, told old campaign stories, and gossiped about Arizona politics. Gallego talked about what it was like to think he was going to die in Iraq. And then again, on January 6th, he was brutally honest about what he really thinks about Senator Kirsten Cinema. We drank a lot. Basil Hayden, double on the rocks, please. And I'll have a, a rye Manhattan. Up. And there's, uh, did I say double for the basil? Wow, you're really worried about this interview, huh? Yeah. And then, oh, uh, what do you have for shrimp? Back to Gallego in a moment. The reason I'm in Arizona is because the state is rife with political intrigue these days. There are a few big plot lines here. The first is about Donald Trump. In 2020, Trump lost the state by just 10,000 votes. Georgia was the only state with a slimmer margin. Arizona quickly became a hotbed of election fraud conspiracy theories stoked by Trump, who, not surprisingly, chose the state for his first post-presidency rally last year. The second big political story is this year's Arizona Senate race. Mark Kelly, the Democratic incumbent, is one of the most vulnerable senators up for re-election. How vulnerable? Well, he spent the last few weeks fighting more with Joe Biden over immigration policy than with any of his potential Republican challengers. On the Republican side, it's been defined by three relatively unknown candidates tripping over each other to secure Trump's endorsement. But there's a third subplot in Arizona politics that's actually about the next Senate election in 2024. If you know anything about Kirsten Cinema, you know that for most of 2021, Arizona's other senator frustrated the Biden White House by withholding support for the president's Build Back Better legislation. Many Democrats seethed that she was crippling the Biden presidency, and with it, Democrats' chances in this year's midterms. She became the target of a fierce backlash from progressives all over the country, but especially in Arizona. What could they do about it? Primary her. They just needed a candidate. Enter Ruben Gallego. I, I, I definitely have learned in my life, like, you only win when you fight. You know, at that point, I've known Kirsten. I had known Kirsten. We've worked together. We've been opposed to each other. Worked together again, even after that. Everything else like that. And I knew that if I didn't, like, throw down that this is going to be a fight, that she was going to steamroll people. Because that's how she operates, right? The way she operates is that she comes in with overwhelming force and she expects everyone to just back off. And that's how she wins. And so I knew that I was going to have to provide a very united front. So like, if you're going to do it, then you're going to have a fight. You respect that? 
Do I respect what? Do you respect that about her? No, absolutely not. I mean, look, Kirsten would never have been able to beat me in this district, no matter what. I would have fought her to a death that she could never have experienced. And she blinked. She backed down. She backed down. A couple of weeks ago, we interviewed on this podcast uh, Ro Khanna, and he had a great story about challenging uh, Mike Honda. Yeah, he, had, he challenged him three times. And he won the final time, and he he was a significant fundraiser in the, in, um, the Bay Area and Silicon yeah. Valley. And he went to Nancy Pelosi, and he said, I want to... I want your endorsement in my primary against Honda. And she said, no, of course, I'm with the incumbent Honda. But um, as he was leaving, as he was leaving, he, she said, but Ro, I want to tell you one thing. Power is never ceded. It's taken. Yeah. When was the last time you talked to cinema one-on-one as a human being? Or even as not a human being? I mean, like, I, I, I saw her on a plane back to Phoenix seven months ago did you say hi yeah so did you guys chat during the flight no I just said hello I mean like I mean this is before a lot of the does she hate you does she hate me I don't know I really don't know but she sees what's happening and that you're a threat and she's probably not happy about it oh like she is a very politically smart person she definitely understands what's happening right now yeah 100% do you think you've passed the point of no return where you are definitely going to jump in that primary or it's still a decision for the future? Well, I think the decision is going to be made by Arizonans. I mean, like, politicians don't decide this on their own vanity. It's like, do you have a chance to win? Do you have a chance to make a difference? Like, what we're looking at right now may be different than what we're looking at next year. In other words, you're not going to mount a suicide mission. No, look... I care about the Arizona Democratic Party. I have done everything, some of the hardest times, to keep this party alive. I, I'm not going to do something that's going to harm the Democratic Party. In in 2018, uh, in 2020, sorry, 2020. Look, I, I thought for a long time about running against Kelly, and at the end of the day, I realized that like two things are going to happen. We're going to have a blowout fight all the way up into the primary. And the most likely thing is that whoever won that primary was going to lose that general because we're going to fight each other. And that's, you know, I, I literally have done everything I can to, to keep this party alive in this state. And I'm, I was not going to do it. Right. Uh, All right. But all right, there's a, I understand there's a pretty uh, significant Senate race in Arizona this year. Yep. And a significant governor's race. Yep. And a lot of the times there's, um, there are events where all the Democrats who are up for election get together. Yep. And they put their hands together and like, unity, yay. And so is, is that going to happen with you and her? Oh, no, because she doesn't do that. You don't think she'll be on stage with Mark Kelly, like, doing events? No. I mean, look, honestly, she's not going to be out here something for Democrats. She's all about herself. She's not going to help Mark. She's not going to help Katie Hobbs or whoever the Democrat is. Like, it's all about herself. Like, I'll be out there helping whoever is the nominee. Look, I, I wish she would. I would love to I, I would love to be on the stump with her helping Democrats win, but she's not going to do it. Well, because I'm a good Democrat. I want, I want, I want us to win. I think we have the values... They're going to make Arizona better. I don't think she's going to do it with me because, I mean, honestly, I think she cares more about her career than she cares about, like, what we can do, 
with our elected office, right? When did that become apparent with her? I think it for me came apparent in the 2016 election where she like nominally endorsed uh, Hillary Clinton. Like she didn't, she wasn't a full-throated endorsement. No, I mean, I was stumping for Hillary all over the state, all over the country, in my opinion. And I look, I will say this. I believe that I saw the existential threat to Trump before a lot of people did. What he was in terms of danger to this democracy, right? And I told people... Why did you think that at that time? What did you see in him? I, so I, I, I looked at the numbers and I said, you know, we're assuming that white voters are going to vote the same way and that we've hit the bottom. And I just didn't believe that. Um, and I'll be honest, like growing up in Evergreen Park, Illinois, with a lot of like working class white Democrats, by the way, I just knew that what he was saying and doing was appealing to them and that that would actually have an effect in it. And everyone just didn't want to believe it. I'm like, well, like, like, yes, like he's pissing off blacks and he's pissing off Latinos. But like, if you move whites, voters by one or two votes like that is that one or two percent actually is astronomical right like i remember i remember i like ran with you the numbers i'm like like if he like because does just this little more that that's all that matters and um i just like that's her typically like playing it safe extremely risk averse yes but but she's risk averse but she actually doesn't understand Honestly, she just doesn't understand Arizona. So you think she, wait, do you think she's overcorrected? Is that the issue? Yeah, definitely overcorrected. Like all of a sudden, this like Ralph, Na- the person who ran Ralph Nader's uh, campaign no, I think, look, I think and was anti-war is suddenly like, right. holy shit! There's this I mean, independent Republican vote I need to appeal to, and she's and she's gone too far the other way. I don't think it's entirely her fault. I think there is a problem within the Democratic Party where we end up being so insular that we don't have any real understanding of non-Democrats and Mm -hmm. non-Republicans because you get yourself involved in a cocoon that you end up overcorrecting. And I, you know, I think one of the fortuitous thing about me growing up is that I got to grow up with working class people that were Democrats, that were disaffected by democratic policies that were pissed off about the shit that was going on and it, everything. I mean, I, listen, I got, you know, in high school I got called every racist word you could ever think of. Really? And I remember being in school and class and someone, you know, citing Rush Limbaugh to me, talking to me about affirmative action because that's why I had uh, gotten accepted into Harvard. Um, and was as much as an insult that was to me, it really actually taught me a lot about what they were feeling, right? So, yes, I was insulted by it, but like actually, the the woman who who said this to me um, was going to community college, and her parents actually had gone to you know a, a, you know University of Illinois Great College, and it actually like taught me a lot. I was like, you know what? It's not that she's mad at me, she's mad at the situation. 
And so the situation is what? The situation is that she she's not going get, to Harvard. She's not well. She's not going to university alone. No, not Harvard. Yeah. I mean, Harvard pissed her off. The fact that she probably wouldn't say I'm going to go to University of Illinois like her, like her, her parents were. Her parents did. So she didn't have the chance to have a better yeah. and future than her parents. Yeah, well, like, but like what I'm saying is like we shouldn't discount. You have to understand that is what you're saying. Yeah, don't discount that that perspective. And like she felt like she got fucked. Even though what she said was basically racist. It was definitely racist. But like it's you were trying to understand like where it was oh, no, coming no, 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 from. Oh no 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 no. Oh, no, no, At that point, I was fucking pissed at her. <laughs> no, I know, I know. Yeah. But in but hindsight, like, but, but hindsight like, once you, like, get beyond that. Yeah, but in hindsight, like, I realized that, like, you know, what she was dealing with yeah. was, like, a frustration, right? And, like, we can't just deny that. Like, that's as politicians. So you could deny that as a citizen, whatever you want. But you can't just deny that as a, as, as a, as, as a politician. They're pissed about something, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, and, like, like yeah. and, and so... Yeah. To some degree, even though Kirsten is like, you know, playing to like this, you know, conservative area, the problem is like she's also like, like putting herself in a bubble. And I think she's always put herself in a bubble. And that is what causes like these like stupid decisions, right? Kirsten's always been a survivor and she's always been a winner. A winner? How so? She will figure out how to win. You have to give her credit. Like, it's hard to win in Arizona. It's hard to win in Arizona the races that she won. Like, she she got lucky, but still, she won, and she won. And so, like, you you follow your history. You can't just, like, you can't just accept that somebody is going to just deny what you know has worked, right? Um, I think that's wrong. I think you have to, like, learn... Right. Actually, the way you learn, by the way, is having town halls, talking to voters, all these kind of things, because it matters. Like she cocooned herself in D.C. Like if you're surrounding yourself by a bunch of like donors, guess what? They're going to tell you everything you want to fucking hear. And you're going to tell them everything they want to fucking hear. If that's the only people you're talking to. Well, exactly. But you have to expose yourself like that's part of your job. Yeah. Like it ha- it's hard to be vulnerable. That's your job. Like, literally. What's a policy that you wish Democrats led more on, on rather than following the Tons polling? Tons of ideas. Now, look, I, like, like, I, I do think polling can be lazy. Can be what? Yeah. Can be lazy. How so? Sometimes you poll to follow an issue, and sometimes you have to lead an issue and create an issue. We're talking about, you know, uh, child tax credit all the time. Fucking, that thing caught, that in Arizona, it cut child poverty by 60 fucking percent. In Arizona, we talk more about CRT than we do about uh, child tax credit. How is it that there's more conversations about something fucking stupid as that? Which, honestly, there's some issues around it. I could understand that, right? Like, I get it. Like, we shouldn't make people feel bad about being American. Like, I don't want that. (laughs) Like, I came to this country with my parents. Like, I'm proud to be an American. Like, I would never be where I am if I had stuck in Mexico. As smart as I am, as hardworking I am, I would still be a fucking bean farmer. Like my, you know, my mom's from Colombia. Like they like had to endure a coup. They had to endure fucking horrible shit. I mean, if you try to talk like anti-American shit in my family, 
my grandma would have slapped you, my grandfather would have slapped you, four of my aunts would have slapped you, my six cousins, older cousins would have fucking slapped me. <laughs> but we don't really talk about the American dream to Latinos. We talk to them like we talk to white liberals. But they're not white liberals. But that's because of our fault. That's because of Democrats. Because all we hire is a bunch of white liberal consultants and we don't actually talk to them how Latinos want to talk to them, which is like, we're proud of this country. We want to make, the, we want to be rich. We want to be successful. And instead, like, we hire a bunch of white fucking consultants that end up like, why are you pointing at me? No, no, it's like, it's there, it's there, it's there. I'm kidding. Latinos want to be rich. They want to be successful. They want to be secure. They want to have jobs. They want to, all these things. And all we do is talk to them like as if they're fucking white liberals, but they're not. They're not. Because, Why is the Democratic Party? Because the money follows money. So all we do is like a bunch of fucking big, big donors that are all white liberals hire end up liberal consultants that end up hiring other very liberal Latino consultants. And they all have this massive fucking feedback loop. And that's it. Right? Where and they all the just Latino kind of, community is, is represented as what? Well, in their minds, it's represented as like these very socially liberal, economically liberal uh, voters. which But all disadvantaged. All, all disadvantaged, yeah. not aspirational, which in reality, they're a mix of everything, right? And they're a nuance, and you should fucking like, treat them as a nuance. But like, they don't want to, because that requires more money. And by the way, then it breaks up all the consulting class like cabal right which is basically right now built on this one view of absolutely do you feel so this conversation you, i hear this conversation all the time when i talk to democrats and it seems like as the latino population grows and grows in its percentage of americans that more and more this will break down and and the compl the complexities within the pop within the latino yeah, population yeah. will start to be recognized the well, well, differences be between a someone who's from Cuba versus no, someone no, no, who's no. from Mexico it's, it's, it's versus someone a, who's from Venezuela. It's not even like, not even like, a, like a, yes, a national issue, but it's also a class issue. It's also right. a generational issue. The difference is it's a money issue. Consultants are only paid to think certain ways about Latinos. Like, Got if, you, were, if, if okay. you look at us from like a consultant that you were, you know, how consultants think, like, think about the white population and be like, oh, like you got like stratify those, right? But yes, Cubans are different from Hondurans. They're using from Mexicans. Even in Arizona, we're so different. Like, I, you know, one generation is different from like three generations. A Yuma, a Yuma Latino is different from a Nogales Latino. Yeah. Yuma versus what? Yuma, Yuma Latino is different from a Nogales Latino, right? Both on the border. Sunny Both, yeah. both on the border. But get, let me tell you, a Nogales Latino, Democrat. A Yuma Latino, most likely Republican. Interesting, really. Because they're like, they've been here longer? Or what, what's the what's the No, difference. Like, Yuma is more dependent on Border Patrol. Uh, you know, they're, they're more, like, they're, they've been there for longer. Nogales, longer, but not as, as intergenerational cross-border. Nogales, they've been cross-border for 300 the years. border cross them. Yeah, border cross them for 300 years. So they don't think about the border as a threat, right? I see. Oh, okay. That's different so than like, I thought. Like, but like, yeah. can you pay a national consultant to figure that shit out? No, they're just no. going to think of Latinos. There, right. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a money. There's money for you to figure out the difference between a white woman, like with a college education, versus a white woman not a college education, right? There's not to figure out those same nuances no, in the Latino po population. Right. That's what you're saying. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you communicate to them? Yeah. Can you get them on your site? Absolutely. 
But who's willing to do that? So the consultant class needs to be, have a much, 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 like, way more nuanced understanding of this community. Or they could just hire Latino lobby, like, consultants that yeah, but, know this but, shit. No, but what you were saying is there are, like, plenty of Latino consultants who actually don't. No, there's a lot of Latino consultants that are only playing back to the white liberals. Actually hire Latino consultants that are not just playing to la white Latino fucking money. We have a lot to talk about, I, I, but I, I just want to, if you, when people ask about your service in Iraq, what, you know, what are the kind of big picture things that you think it's important for them to know about? I mean, I know you have a lot of stories, but what's the most important, what, what do you think is the most important thing to tell people about that experience? Well, I mean, so I go to Iraq, you know, um, I'm not an officer, I'm an infantryman, right? And uh, I'm not Which even Which means like, what, for people who don't understand that? We're the guys that like, do the shooting, kick in the doors, like all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, the popular kind of idea of an infantryman is like, these are the people who get- We do the work. Yeah, and get, are most likely to die. At that point in your life, did you, could you even plan for like what your life would be when you got out? Or was it literally just every day getting focused on the task at hand and getting through the mission? Well, I mean, I planned, you know, you know, I became best friends with, uh, so I was planning my life after I left Iraq. Um, I became really good, like best friends with uh, a guy named Jonathan Grant. And we had started planning our post-war life in New Mexico, we were going to kind of live next to each other, you know. Um, and um, you know, he died. Uh, he's one of the first, uh, second ones to die, second second wave guys to die, and then. Um, what were the circumstances? We were, you know, we were in a combat area, um, Operation Matador, it was called. We had just taken casualties the day before clearing a town and uh, he was in a vehicle um, and uh, you know my um, my vehicle rolled over the mine and the mine went off on uh, his vehicle so that was a little fucked up what it changed of my view is on on our government by the time we started dying, we'd already told them that like our armor was insufficient, right? How close did you come? Um, uh, unfortunately, I know. I, I counted 11 times. I came pretty close to death. That's a lot. Yeah. Tell me about it. That's a fucking lot of times. All right. I know that's tough to talk about. So yes. I, 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 Not I, usually. I, I appreciate it. And I... You I'm gonna know. bill you for my fucking therapy. I know, I know. I, I apologize, but it's, all right. it's like it's a big part of who you are. And oh, it is. Look, I, look. I mean, like I, I literally wrote a effing book because of yeah. it, and not really because of it, because the guys wanted a book written. Is that what? Is that why you did it? I never wanted to write that book. Yeah. All right. So now, now the easy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, it, it, it definitely is. All right. I mean, look, everything's easy after war. 
Well, uh, yeah, I imagine going through that puts things in perspective. Fuck yeah. That politics is not, uh, you know, people saying mean things on Twitter is not, <laughs> it's not exactly going to, like, rattle you very much. No, nah, it doesn't, you know, nothing really rattles, you know. So, I mean, some things obviously do, but not, no. <laughs> most things in politics don't. I would say this. Everyone knows I have PTSD, right? I've been very open about that. And um, during the war, so after the first group of guys died, we had to get new guys to come in to replace them. And, you know, they weren't, you know, they weren't ready for war. And so when it came, the most important thing I remembered about them was that like they needed to I needed to like make them get into the war right because like everybody thinks that human nature is flight or flight that's actually not true sometimes it is but most human nature is trying to rationalize normality they want to actually believe what's happening is not actually happening and this is why you see like people like in like mass shootings like don't do don't run do anything else like that they can't believe it that happens in war too that happened on january 6th in congress yeah and that happened in war too like they're they just didn't want to like so i had guys that didn't want to accept that war was happening right like that people were shooting at them that we were shooting at them and so like then i had to I had to put them in focus. And so that's, just, so that's the same thing I had to do on January 6th, like trying to, to get these civilians to understand, like, we're about to get fucked. I don't know, I don't know what else to tell you, right? And um, look, I'll be honest, like, I was going to kill somebody. Like, I was, I was going to kill somebody that day. It's all my job. I didn't... I was not going to die that, that, that day. I didn't give a fuck. And, um, you know, I, uh, I had a draft uh, text to my wife um, that day. Just, just that I'm sorry. I had, to, I had to do my job. Fuck those guys. Teaching some of your, I was teaching members, them how like to stab them in the neck. I was telling them how to stab in the neck, stab in the eye. You didn't, have, you didn't have real weapons, right? You know, weapons. I had, I, we had pens. I give a fuck. I would have killed all those motherfuckers to save this democracy. Fuck those guys. And that's our show. Today's show was produced by Brooke Hayes, Kara Tabor, and Carlos Prieto. This was Carlos's last week with the show. He has been a joy to work with, and he taught me a lot. We all wish him well at his next gig. I'm excited to welcome Adam Allington as our new senior producer. Jenny Ament is our executive producer. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. A special shout-out to our field producer, Anthony Wallace, and to Buck and Ryder Restaurant in Phoenix. 
I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening.